This is a Broad Pods production. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. At the moment, the world's created so that we are, you know, we are liked and we're waiting to be liked and waiting for other people to like us. And then you have the dopamine being released because of the fact we're being judged and have I got enough likes? I'm clawing for something that can never bring me happiness. Because if we wait in this world for other people to like us, well, I'd be completely... Imagine social media in a world where trolls don't exist and you are encouraged not to spend hours scrolling and you get paid to watch the ads. What is this utopia, Mimi? It sounds (laughs) impossible. But our guest today has created that very world and it is called We Are 8, a free social media platform that has already raised over one and a quarter million dollars for charities. Our guest today is the incredible Sue Fennessy and We Are Eight is her massive passion project. She is so amazing. She's an Aussie woman taking on the world with this. Such huge admiration. She's just so amazing. And yes, huge admiration for her. Sue was the founder of a media data company providing intel to the likes of Disney and Goldman Sachs, no less. And long before that, she was a very, very young 21-year-old mover and shaker creating platforms for TV networks and negotiating major Olympic sponsorship deals. Now, that's all true. But what's important to know is that um, the start of this interview is a little different because 
I had forgotten to press record. I was going to say someone forgot to press record. We don't have to put it on you. (laughs) I have to own it. So um, when we start this uh, interview, you join us right at the moment. We're still dealing with the horror of what could have been. (laughs) If you could feel my heart right now. (laughs) We're professionals. We can do this. Can I just say showing vulnerability, doing those things, makes us human and builds trust is what we've discovered. And we're not able to show up as ourselves anymore and make those mistakes and just love each other more. It's right at the heart of eight, weirdly enough. Well, I'm not editing that start out, by the way. I'm, I'm keeping all of that because that's hilarious. And you've just given us that nugget. I will introduce you though, Sue, but we love vulnerability here and we'll probably go back to that. But let me let me start the podcast now that I've hit record. Sue, it is so lovely to speak with you, an Australian woman in the UK doing incredible things globally. I'm giggling because we've already done this. <laughs> um, But, you know, you're taking on the big guys, the social media platforms who are just so dominant in the world and you are the only female global CEO for socials platforms. We're here to work out how the hell you're able to do this because I'm intimidated by the thought of it. So how? How are you doing this? And, you know, at some point we need to put this into context and understand what We Are Eight is actually. Joe, I, you know, I don't often stop and think about how big they are but I do think I am very driven by how broken they are. I mean, I look at the fact that Facebook Meta started because guys in a dorm were judging women and ranking them. And we've just, it's become a massive manifestation of judgment and ranking. And as a result, the entire world's feeling insecure when they show up. And so I look at that And then I look at the fact they took $120 billion in ad revenue and didn't share that with the most important stakeholders on the platform, the creators, the publishers, the charities, and the people. And so their ad model is inherently broken. The economics are broken and they keep everything. And at the same time, they're fueling the destruction of our society, you know, mental health crisis, the climate crisis, they're fueling climate misinformation. They knowingly fuel teen suicide. And so I couldn't see anyone tackling this or reimagining it in a way that put people at the centre of everything. And so we knew their vulnerability was their ad model because their ad model is actually so broken, it's only delivering a 0.04% engagement rate. So if we could build a better ad model that shared money with people and put money back into people's pockets that they could pay forward to charity, then we can rebuild around that a new social home that's full of love, doesn't tolerate hate, and where we can come together in a much joyful, happier place. By the way, evil destroys itself. So I think Zuckerberg and Musk are going to be fighting each other literally in the ring and we're just going to get on with it and pull the good people together. You make it sound so simple. (laughs) But I guess if, no, but I mean by, what I mean by that, if you were to stop and think about actually what you were doing, I guess you wouldn't do it, right? I actually wake up thinking about how 
fucked. Am I allowed to swear on this? You must <laughs> swear. Well, clearly, <laughs> I'm really driven by how fucked things are. And we really are on a mission to unfuck them. And I get told every day by people in our industry that their kids are self-harming, you know, their kids are suicidal, suffering from eating disorders, all these shocking things on top of things like the climate crisis. We do have six years until the damage that we've done to our planet is irreversible. And so I can't not do it, Joe. And look, this is, you know, $43 million invested working how to do it. We worked with a team of behavioural scientists for two years, actually working through, are people even, would they be prepared to watch an ad? Because the content piece is relatively easy, but would they be prepared to watch an ad and give two minutes of their time a day? And could we leave them feeling really loved? Because if we can crack that nut, then we can pump billions of dollars back into people and publishers in the planet. And so, you know, I don't think I can not do it. There have been moments that I've actually tried. <laughs> I've tried. So how did you know that this in particular was your purpose or do you just have a higher purpose to somehow be of service to the people and the planet and this just popped up as a concept that you felt you could get on board with and live out your purpose? I mean, it's a beautiful question. You know, I think our purpose chooses us and I never get attached to that, honestly. I mean, I think we're born in this into this world, we're sort of shoved in certain directions and then we try and make the most of it. I've spent 35 years in media and technology. I built a data company which became the backbone to media trading in the US. And I think, how did I even build that? I mean, I, I don't even think the structure and the thought came into my own mind. I think it was really put there. <laughs> and so you think about the journey and I think I've always been going in this direction. And look, social media is the medium of our time and it doesn't serve people. And I think the next evolution of technology is where it serves us. And so I do see myself in service to people on the planet. We're here for a very short, I mean, what's the earth? 4.6 billion years old. We're here for a blip and happiness for me is doing things that, you know, can, can make a difference. And I can't sit by and, and I, I can't believe we can live. And this is true of Silicon Valley. I don't know how those guys can sit in Silicon Valley when right on their doorstep is the biggest homeless population across the US and not think, shit, I made $120 billion last year. <laughs> I think I might try and fix that. Or there's 800 million people that can't access fresh water. I think I might try and fix it. So I think you either think about others or, you know, you think of yourself. And the frightening part for me is I believe 99% of people want to do something for others, do things for their families, do things for their friends. And the very frame of Instagram makes people look at themselves, feel judged 
and feel insecure because what they really want to do is give and then it starts to flow. So I think it chooses you. (laughs) So do you think that the structure itself brainwashes us to be so inward facing that we silence our urge to help others? I think inherently everyone wants to help others and feel really good about it and that's what brings them joy. Unfortunately, I think we've got generations, Gen Z, Gen X, everyone, actually millennials, who are dampening that down. I mean, we're, the very structure of the feed is built on existing platforms to keep you scrolling for, you know, four, six hours a day. Four to six hours a day is the average time people scroll. And so that's making us numb and we're not getting what we need. You know, uh, silly videos, you know, I love a silly video. I love a laugh, as we've discovered this morning. But also getting out and living again as a society, we're not talking to each other and giving. And there's no, so we often say, you know, you can still dance on TikTok, tweet on X, but change the world over here. And we just launched a celebration feature where when you invite your friends to aid, after you pay your, every time you watch an ad, money gets donated to charity and you get tiny wallet drops. And when you do that, donations also go to charity and your friends then celebrate you. And then you can do it, you can send them a little emoji and you say thank you. And it's this beautiful flywheel. This whole idea of tiniest little things can make us feel valued. And unfortunately, I think we're living in a world where no one's feeling seen, heard or valued. And that's not a happy, that's not a good state for us to be in. So I'm just curious on that um, psychological, neurological level at just the, the kind of the base dopamine experience, do you think or in your studies, is it showing that the dopamine that we receive or the feel good that we get from giving is equal to the feel good that we get from people on eight celebrating us for giving? Yes, that's exactly what we're seeing. So what we ultimately wanted to prove is that the release, the, the chemicals that are released are equal to, because they did a study once and showed that if you get over 400 likes or something, it's the same dopamine that's released on as on your wedding day. So if you think about the power and the Depends that, on your wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a story to tell, but now's not the time. Oh, go on, Joe. I think it's the perfect. It's such a distraction. But the comedian in me just had to make that joke. But I think, you know, we've got this addiction. That's why we're seeing people post and then if they don't get enough likes in the first 30 minutes, they'll take it down. And so at the moment the world's created so that we are you know, we are liked and we're waiting to be liked and waiting for other people to like us. We've just created a love button, which is a little love meter, where you're celebrated for the love you give. So if you're loving other people and commenting on their posts and bringing the love and giving the love, your love counter goes up. And we're having all of these things that are relating to that. So between the love meter 
and the celebration feature that absolutely releases more than the the other. Well, it releases it, but it releases it in a good way and a real way. So it's, it is fascinating. And actually, I studied the algorithms because two things are at play. One is the, the chemicals that are being released in our brains. And the second thing is the algorithms. I studied those algorithms for years. I mean, the TikTok algorithm is built on linger time. I had, I was speaking to one of the TV networks in Germany yesterday and this guy told me that he installed TikTok. The third post he saw was a far right wing extreme post and because he was so shocked and horrified, he stayed on it because he was, it was like watching the car crash. He was watching it and then he was just served more and more. So when you have the algorithms that are literally feeding us the content and then you have the dopamine being released because of the fact we're being judged and have I got enough likes, I'm clawing for something that can never bring me happiness. Because if we wait in this world for other people to like us, well, I'd be completely fucked (laughs) Um, because many people don't like me. And I'm now weirdly addicted to, and I know that sort of got a negative connotation, that word, I wake up and actually want to celebrate other people. And I'm only on eight for eight minutes a day. We don't want you scrolling for four to six hours, which by the way is three to four months of your life every year. We want you on for eight minutes, love a few people, see your friends in a private feed, watch a couple of ads, donate to charity, feel really good and go and run through the forest or have breakfast with your family or whatever it is. So live, live again, you know. Oh, well, so, I mean, we want to know how you, how you are so glorious. Like what, what happened in your, what happened in your life? (laughs) You know, like, no, but to have this perspective, I mean, Mimi, this is the, this is the whole purpose of this podcast is to really speak with people who have a perspective of life that is about love and is about giving and generosity and abundance and all of those beautiful things. And not everyone has it, Sue. So, I mean, we do need to understand Is this something that was modelled for you in your family? Did you have experiences in your life that taught you this? What crack in heaven let you slip through (laughs) onto Earth to save us from the demons of social media? Oh, my God, I love you. That nearly makes me cry. Mum and Dad were beautiful. I grew up in a very working place in North Dandenong, actually, and Mum and Dad were you know, that we just lived a very normal life. They were good people. Dad was a doctor. Mum was a nurse. You know, everyone tried to hold it together. But Dad did rotary and art class and I used to do meals on wheels with Mum. And I, I still remember the smell of going into, I'd carry the tray and go into these old lonely people's houses. And they loved it because they really wanted the conversation. They wanted to talk to us and more than the food. But mum and dad were always doing things for, for community and other people. And, but they didn't see themselves as any kind of saints. It was just what you did and what everyone did. And I think that we have, 
lost a little bit of that. And I believe it's in inherently how people want to live. So were you exposed to charity work and really giving within your community from a very young age or as long as you can remember? Is it just something that you grew up with in your blood? Yes. I think we just all look after each other. I think it was, and even in my first business when I was 21, it was sort of not even a, we didn't even think about this. We just, every year we do two big charity things and select that we do a Christmas dinner every year for street kids and we get all the things donated. I remember giant turkeys and chickens from Ralph Bird from Eat More Poultry (laughs) and just we'd give them Telstra phone cards and phone little things and just, but it wasn't a big thing. It wasn't oh, isn't this fantastic? You know, it was just, we all look after each other. What do you think made your parents that way in the community? Was everybody like that or were they sort of extraordinary to where you grew up? I think when you're a doctor, so dad was a pathologist in a public, a big public hospital. And when you choose to be in the public system versus the private system, because he had lots of offers to go into the private pathology and make money and he just wouldn't ever do it because he felt he was in service. I used to go into his laboratory and it was amazing to me looking down that uh, microscope and seeing the cells and the what is inside our bodies is an entire universe. It's a, it's amazing to me. And then we'd look at the stars and that was a whole universe. So I think it was this really deep love of science and I remember Dad came back from America and started talking very early about AIDS and new diseases that were coming out and what they meant, you know, and what they meant for people and this real need to sort of come together. So I, and I remember the first microscope, he would actually literally talk to a doctor in England or Germany or or America while he was looking at the cells and they could look at the cells at the same time, which in the late 70s was an amazing thing. I mean, there was no internet, there was nothing. And so for me, it was a a, a real love of technology, connection, what was possible through connection. And even though they, I know I'm going off piste here, but even though they were talking about cellular structure, it, it it was connection for something else, connection for the good of a person or something else. So I think subtly all those dots were joining. And then mum's a nurse. And I think nurses, nurses, teachers, critical parts of our society are under pressure. I mean, we've, I was hearing the other day that there's a, a lot of hospital workers once a week going to food banks in the UK. And the reality is the government doesn't have enough money because they don't charge the tech companies enough tax and the tech companies manage to avoid it in a global world. And so they don't have enough money. Teachers are under pressure. Nurses are under pressure. Everyone's underpaid. And, in fact, we we share 60 cents in the dollar, actually. So 50% goes to people's pockets, 5% to creators and publishers and 5% to a charity and one of those to the planet and carbon projects. And 
we thought, imagine taking 1% and putting it into a nurse's fund and 1% and putting it into a teacher's fund, which is what we're going to do. If we think about the money Google and Facebook make $300 billion a year and pump it back into our society, and all people have to do is watch two minutes of ads a day and give a bit of love. That's the sort of dots. Mm. It is so, so brilliant, Sue. But you're right. What? How, how? I just, you know, I'm, I'm going off on my socialist rant here, but I cannot understand how the billions of dollars that tech companies just hoard, literally hoard, it is unconscionable. It makes yeah. me yeah. rageful. What, what the fuck do they do with that money anyway? I'd really like to know. <laughs> Who needs that? What are they doing? What did they do with it? I think we're going to look back, Joe, in 12 months, 18 months and say, oh, my God, what were we doing? Because we just did the math. Our initial goal is to get one, just 1% of our human population. So there's 8 billion people on the planet, 1%, 80 million people. When 80 million people watch just two minutes of ads a day, that is $1.3 billion a month back into people's pockets. And if everyone paid that forward, 54% of people pay it forward now, but if everyone paid that forward with just 1% of the population, we'd be pumping $1.3 billion back into the economy and back into things that matter every month. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what you're doing is so mind-blowingly incredible and hearing about your mum and dad and who they are and and the impression that they have made on you as a person is so fascinating to me. Did you have siblings? Like was there somebody else in your life that really shaped this passionate person that we're talking to today? Yes, so I have an older sister. Truthfully, I don't think it's always easy living with someone who is uh, obsessive. And I'm talking about me here, not not my sister. I mean, I'm highly sensitive. So I was trying to save a sloth when we were in Germany because its cage was too small. I mean, my kids say, oh my God, mum, I've got three boys, three beautiful, loving boys. But they say, oh, my God, mum, you you know, you are on the spectrum. By the way, I think every human is on the spectrum. We're all on one big, gigantic spectrum, right? So I think it all shapes you. I think even Megan Wixie, who bashed me up in grade four, you know, I couldn't understand why she was bashing me up. I was having a conversation with a teacher about some random architecture or something, and then I realised you don't talk about shit like that actually. But I couldn't understand why. So I think why she was bashing me up. And then actually, I realized she actually saved my life because I think one of the teachers was a bit dodgy. 
but and I'd left the school. But I think it all shapes us. I think we are born a certain way into a family dynamic. Mum used to do night duty and she used to kiss me on the, she used to, she was so elegant. She had beautiful red lipstick. She'd kiss me on the stomach and then go off to do night duty and say, when you wake up in the morning, you're going to look there, I'm going to be, and I'm going to be back. And I often thought, God, how did she cope? You know, getting home, she'd come in, wake me up, give me a hug, make us breakfast. I mean, you know, it's really beautiful. That's why nurses and teachers and they just, they give love. It's dedication because it's certainly not money for them, right? What a beautiful gift she gave you. I mean, I have to say I've never met a child of a nurse that I didn't love because I think nurses are (laughs) incredible people and also Megan Wigsey. Let's find her. (laughs) Can we find (laughs) Megan Wigsey? Because I've got to tell you, I actually love her now because I think what that taught me, we all need to learn to stand up to bullies, right? I mean, I think one of the things people often say to me, why didn't you make this a non-profit? And firstly, you couldn't raise, you couldn't invest $43 million in technology because on one side we've built the experience for people, but we've had to build an entire ad buying engine like Facebook Ad Manager on the other side and then zero tolerance of hate. We've had to build this whole AI infrastructure and everything. You can't do it as a non-profit. We're a B Corp, so we're we, you know, good for people, good for the planet. Luckily, all the investors as well, and I've put everything on the line to invest 12 and a half million myself. All the money I've made, everything I've done has all been plowed back in because I need, I think you work out how little you need to actually live and what what is enough, this whole idea of what is enough. And I think I know my enough. I know how I can live as long as I cook. So I, when mum was working, I, I learned to cook dinner. I used to cook dinner a lot when I was growing up from a young age and I love it. I, I, as long as I've got a kitchen, can put food on the table, I actually like it when I'm in a smaller house. So I think, I think for me, if I didn't put everything on the line, I haven't done my best. So just on that note of cooking dinner late and cooking a lot and you loving cooking, some people would look back on their childhoods and say, I was cooking dinner for myself from a really young age because I was neglected because my mum was out working nights. You don't see it like that. You know, you are so glass half full and you're so, you know, as you put it yourself, you're so sort of obsessive about what you're passionate about. It's just amazing. Like it's wonderful. Oh, thanks, Mimi. I used to pretend I had a cooking show, actually. God, I wish we had the internet back then. I wish we had eight back then. So I would pretend I have a cooking show. I used to chop everything up in the little bowls and then just talk to an imaginary audience that didn't exist and cook. And then I used to pretend there was this chute where you could put all the leftover food into this chute and it would end up in Africa or whatever. Because seeing dad on the, I've never joined that dot actually, on the microscope, imagine if we could actually put food down a chute because food waste, by the way, is the most damaging to our planet. 
So if we can have less food waste, share more, then we're in good shape. So I don't know. I love food. I love tastes. I love food. And and for me, my chief of staff said the other day, that that's your love language, actually cooking for people, because it's also a long journey, building this, working out how to do it, working out all the little pieces of it, making it really easy for people. It's hard. And so cooking a meal is very immediate for me. So no matter what day I've had, no matter what shit I've been served up, I can cook a meal and put it on the table and all sit down and eat it. It's it's amazing. I mean, what are, you're a very good orator, by the way. I really oh, enjoy God. the way you just drop in stories, really? which is really fun because, you know, well, Mimi and I are, are storytellers and, you know, I, I really love a good story. So this is joyous for me. Can we flip this now? Can I interview both of You'll you? You'll never get on I'm with your day if you start us talking. <laughs> uh, well, you're not allowed. But at some point uh, we will have a conversation, Sue, because, you know, I'm building a startup mm. and Congrats. this is literally the nourishment I needed to keep going. And I think we're going to get on to now some really key parts of what you're doing. One is I read that you said you believe that We Are Eight could only be created by a woman. And for me, I'm making broad radio. It's radio for women by women because women's voices are just, they're just not heard, right, in the media. So I'm interested to know why you think women and what impact women have had on you such that you believe our leadership is very different. Was there a woman who, you know, mentored you, who who showed you when you were younger what was, what your potential was? I don't want to name one, Joe, because there are so many amazing women that have pulled me up and there are so many amazing men. I remember my first job, one of my first jobs, my first job was Just Jeans in Parkmore Keysborough and it was, and it was a great woman who ran the store there, Carol, forgotten her last name. She was fantastic and she was so supportive of the team and then I went to Brash's Superstore. Oh, my God, that was my dream job. <laughs> Brash's was my dream job in the it 80s. Was, oh, I yeah. Mean, but the interesting thing, in Clayton it was a superstore and the women were all on the record bar and the men were able to sell stereos and microwaves and everything and the men got commission. So we'd work the same hours. Women didn't get commission and men did and I was really outraged at that. So I went and spoke to the manager, spoke to the assistant manager, and they said, but you women can't carry the boxes to the cars. And I said, but I can, and I'll sign something to say. And I said, by the way, there's people that wheel it out to the cars. So this is redundant. Yeah. This is a redundant <laughs> issue. Please let me do it. And on that first Saturday that I was able to go on the floor because then we led a rebellion and then all the women were on the floor and it was it was totally fucking fantastic but but we I remember that first Saturday I did my sales but then the assistant manager who was a guy gave me his sales and this is why we need great men too right and so I was the top salesperson for the thing and it pushed this change through, but that was also because of a good man. And so we need constructs and we need big constructs and we need media for women, built by women. We need technology built by women, 
because when women build it, they have a, a much – sorry about the dog in the background – we have a much more open mindset. We just do things in a different way. So from staging your own rebellion in your job early on, you are staging a far bigger rebellion nowadays. Now, this is a great segue into our little segment, which is an origin story that I'm going to bring to you both now, Joe and Sue. So I was thinking about the number eight because, of course, we are eight and how, okay, we all sort of know that it's a lucky number, particularly in Asian culture. So I started researching origin stories to do with luck and good fortune. And I ended up sort of going down this rabbit hole and I ended up with the Incas and the Egyptians who had looked to crystals for mystical power and luck and good fortune to increase their own good fortune. But none had actually used a crystal in quite the same way as a bit later on in the Middle Ages when King Arthur needed a quick reading and a glimpse at the future. The mythical Merlin reached for his polished crystal ball in the hopes of divining guidance to good luck. So this period led to a very long history of crystal ball gazing in all sorts of ways and forms that you know, a lot of us are familiar with. So in the 1940s, so fast forward to the 1940s, a woman named Mary Carter was earning a living as a clairvoyant in Cincinnati. And she came up with an object that was inspired by the guiding qualities of the crystal ball. I got it. That she did. No, stop. You're not I allowed to it. guess. You are not allowed to guess. And that she used with her clients a container that held a small chalk slate and that she would shake that container and then open it up to reveal the answer to that client's question written on the slate. Now, Mary's son, Albert, stop it, Joe. I know that you know it. Mary's son, (laughs) Albert, saw commercial opportunity and he invented a cylinder filled with molasses and two dice that had answers written on each face and both ends of the cylinders were transparent and when you shook it and you asked a question, the so-called answer would drift up to the top revealing, you know, what your fate was going to be and that was called the psychoseer. Now that product was a big flop but then along came a guy called Abe and he picked up the patent and encased the device in its obvious original fortune-telling inspiration something that looked a little bit like a crystal ball. But that was a flop. So enter <laughs> enter Chicago's Brunswick Billiards Company, who put their take on the crystal ball and created the magic eight ball. Eight ball. The eight it. ball for luck <laughs> and good fortune to guide you to your very best future. And that is selling a million eight balls, magic balls, sorry, every year. And it's been inducted into the American Toy Hall of Fame. And so I was thinking lucky number eight and the crystal ball unite. And I'm hoping, Sue, that the number eight holds great good fortune for you and all of the causes that we are eight are channeling for. Oh my God. Firstly, I just have to say, Mimi, you know, I have for a long time been obsessed with the magic eight ball. For, oh, for, you have one. Oh, my God. Do, I did breakfast radio for a long time, Sue, and it became for about a year it was my favourite thing to go, 
well, we have to ask the Magic 8-Ball. And it was just always, it never failed to give me a laugh because you'd ask something and then it would say, it is so. And you'd always go, yes, it's it so. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I had never heard of the Magic 8-Ball until Are I just kind of. I'm not joking. Until I just went down that rabbit hole of searching for something to do with the number eight that meant good fortune. So, Sue, did you know that it was the Magic 8-Ball? I did. By the way, I just love that story so much. But I love that link back to crystals and ancient Egypt and that evolution, which is so beautiful. But we should be giving magic eight balls. To, we should be creating <laughs> yellow magic eight balls. It's like there is a commercial opportunity in there somewhere. <laughs> and so, Sue, the question, though, is to me, as you, if you were to ask the magic eight ball your future, you bring so much research. I mean, you're not really leaving anything to chance. But what do you foresee What do you want to see in a crystal ball for yourself? A billion people spending eight minutes a day on eight will solve the world's biggest problems. And I just, I see it, I feel it. And we get to 80 million, just 1%. Everyone then invites two friends. Then we're 240 million we can actually solve the biggest problems in the world with 240 million people. That's exciting. Getting to 80 million and then getting to 240 million and then it's, let's do this. How fun. Then it starts to get really exciting. So, look, I feel to have a billion people inspiring each other every day and finding their own light and realising that they are seen and heard and valued, that's happy. That is my favourite part of it where you say that it's about inspiring people to own their voices and be rewarded for who they are. Like that's what everyone on the planet yearns for, don't they, really, to be seen. Right, to be seen and to be heard. And I think because there's no, they're fueling hate actually on Twitter and other things, everyone's feeling really shit as a result. And there are bits of love that are like a tease that we can get addicted to for a minute, but then we fear, we live in fear because we know any second now I could have someone like happened on Rio Ferdinand tweeted about me and then someone said at Sue Fennessy, go and die. And so, yeah, you know, you say, (laughs) you know, really good things, but then you're on edge because you're thinking, God, am I going to get punched in the face by Megan Wixie? Well, <laughs> who we love, by the way, who we love, love now. Megan Wixie, I really do. <laughs> Shout out to Megan. <laughs> I love both of you. Can I say, you have made my morning so happy. You've made me miss Australia, actually, a lot. You've made me miss my mum and dad thinking about them and talking about them. I'm going to call them quickly and tell them how much I love them and forgive me for talking about you. (laughs) Oh, we have just loved having you on the show. And before we let you go, we have to ask the burning question, what, Sue Fennessy, is your be? Be you. Be yourself. You're doing the world a disservice if you're not. So be yourself. It's very beautiful because I have to say I've never met anyone so distinctly themselves almost ever, I think, as you, Sue. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's a frightening. That's a frightening thought, Joe, isn't it? Not at all. It's glorious. <laughs> oh, I love both of you. I can see you two. Not to exclude, not to exclude myself, but I can see you two are going to become very good friends. <laughs> I just know it. Mate, I've I've just booked a ticket to London, Joe, <laughs> Mimi. Both of you are welcome to come and stay in my house anytime. Oh, thank you. Truly, I mean that. And I never say that. You never say that. (laughs) I hate people. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I've got three friends. (laughs) Seriously, I could talk to both of you all day. (laughs) I know, I know. But you have a day to have and it's Friday night here, so we have wine to drink. It's so lovely to have met you, so we love you. It's been gorgeous. Lots of love. I have loved this. Thank you both. Love you, love you, love you. Thank you for listening. We love you joining us for our A to B chats. Yes, we do. Please see our show notes for our acknowledgement of country and all the people who help us put this podcast together, as well as interesting links to our guests' work and other references we've mentioned. Such as your frequently unverified quotes. Yes, I may (laughs) still need to check a few of those. Thank you. We're Joe and Mimi from A to B. Rate, follow and get in touch on our website. And let us know whose A to B you'd like to find out about. We can't wait for you to hear our next conversation.